Thanks, Ryan and Ollie, and good morning, everyone. Uh, we're at the, the final verse uh, of this uh, wonderful psalm. Some would say that it's the best of the six, uh, not the best teaching, I can uh, promise you that, uh, but certainly it's a, a standout verse. Uh, we, we hope that you've benefited from this uh, deep dive into the 23rd psalm, and that each week you've found uh, a new insight about the Lord and your walk with Him, and crucially, your appreciation and wonder uh, of Him has grown. Today, uh, we've, uh, I'd love us to read aloud the entire psalm. Uh, each week, um, we have considered each verse, but let's now consider the entire psalm. The words will be on the screen, uh, or you can follow it in your Bibles. Um, we don't do this much as a congregation, but uh, let's live a little and push the boat out. Uh, so, can I encourage you to stand, preferably uh, with your masks on, and let's uh, say this psalm uh, as I lead you, loud enough for those on Zoom to hear us. Okay, we're good to go? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Please take your seats. Verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Today, we want to consider both the determined pursuit of God and the dwelling place of God. I would have expected that you have probably attended a Christian funeral uh, where this psalm has been read. What comfort and hope it brings to a grieving family and particularly this final verse. But perhaps you've also attended the funeral of a colleague or a friend that has been conducted as a humanist funeral. There was no prayer, no communal singing. The celebrant performing the service will have pointed to a life well lived. The ceremony will have been based on the humanist's worldview that people shape their own lives in the here and now because they believe it's the only life they have and that the universe is a natural phenomenon with no supernatural side. That's taken directly from the Humanist UK website. But this psalm and the last verse in particular clashes with this approach to life and to death. The psalmist David clearly points to the Lord's care for our welfare through the picture of a shepherd and his sheep. And as David put the finishing touch to his poem, he sees beyond the present and looks to a forever home. This psalm resonates with my belief as a Christian, and for many of you, we believe in the existence of an active God 
a supernatural being at work in the world. And we hold to the, the conviction not only of an eternal existence, but the offer of perfect life without end. And as we take a close look at this verse, I pray whether you already believe in a creator God who wants a relationship with you forever, or maybe you're still figuring this out, that you will be convinced that in all the days of your life and for the life to come, that the Lord is your shepherd who has sought you out like a lost sheep and who will continue pursuing you with the best of his character and who wants you to dwell with him forever. Verse 6 starts with this word, surely. It's a certainty. It's guaranteed. It's without question. David must have been thoroughly convinced of all that he's written so far that he begins this final sentence with such confidence and assurance. But this word also directs our attention to the significance of the final words that he's about to make. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me. Two incredibly powerful words coupled together. We have uh, two sheepdogs. Uh, they are pedigrees of the Bingham fold down in the moorings. Betsy is the old girl at the back there, and Levi is the frantically mad teenager who melts my brain. When, they, when we as a family go out for a walk in the mountains or really anywhere, uh, these two dogs act like we're the sheep that they've always had the instinct to round up. They run from the front to the back. They surround us. They ensure that we're all kept together. So they don't just tag along and follow behind. They will actively pursue us. And that's the picture here of God as the shepherd leading his flock and the, the two sheepdogs called goodness and mercy circling the sheep and pursuing them. And doesn't that say a lot about God that these aspects of his character can be seen and experienced in our lives. We don't need to go chasing after them. God pursues us with his kindness and steadfast love. So firstly, goodness, simply that which is pleasing, effective, desirable, kind, right. Of course, often our definition of good doesn't always match up with God's definition. The apostle Paul would say in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So what is the good that God is working? Well, Paul tells us in the very next verse, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son. So the good that God does in our lives is whatever conforms us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. And what does God use to shape us into the likeness of Jesus? All things. So that, that includes the valley lows, the dark times, as well as the bright ones. The same Hebrew word that is used for goodness is also used in Genesis 50, uh, when Moses is addressing, addressing his brothers who had sold him into slavery. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God's goodness followed Joseph, even as he was sold into slavery, even as he lay, later lay in prison. There were many unpleasant times in Joseph's life, but God was working out his purposes. 
James and uh, Lisa Hatton were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. James has gone to be with the Lord, and Lisa is still serving New Tribes Mission in America. But when they were here at Crescent a number of years ago, I clearly remember that when they, account, uh, when they recounted things that had happened in their lives or that were happening in their lives, they often recited these words. James would say, God is good, and Lisa would echo all the time. Lisa would repeat all the time, and James would respond, God is good. God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. No matter the situation, whatever the outcome, even if it appeared unfair or unkind, their deep-felt conviction was that, was that God is good. Is that my approach to everything that happens in my life, in yours? Andrew Peterson's song, Always Good, has some helpful lines. So maybe the answer surrounds us, but we don't have eyes to see that you're always good. My God, my God, be near me. There's nowhere else to go. And Lord, if you can hear me, please help your child to know that you're always good. As we try to believe what is not meant to be understood, will you help us to trust your intentions for us are still good? Because you laid down your life and suffered like I never could, because you're always good, always good. And then uh, David adds mercy to the mix. This is the Hebrew word uh, chesed. Uh, this word combines all the thoughts of steadfast love, enduring commitment, loyalty, mercy, and kindness into one. Sorry, my clicker has uh, failed to work or the computer is failing to work. We'll fire on ahead. The, 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 uh, this idea of hesed uh, is found in the Old Testament uh, 247 times uh, in the Old Testament. The term is often used as a characteristic uh, of God. His hesed is an essential part of who he is. It describes uh, the relational and dynamic love that God has for his people. The Bible Project has a, a great video explaining this word. Uh, it points to the story of Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Ruth is a, is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, uh, but tragically her husband dies along with his brother and his father, and all Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth that she should, she should go back to her people, but instead Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep her promise, they call it an act of hesed. That's found in Ruth 3. In this story, we see Ruth's mercy is, is not conditional or, or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She's just a generous and loving person who keeps her word. That's hesed. Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most hesed in the Bible is God. When God appears to Moses on the mountain, this is, God, this is how God describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In the Bible, we see God is loyal and loving for no other reason than that's just who God is. Of course, He wants His people to respond with mercy in return, but even when He doesn't, God's mercy remains. I love the celebration in Psalm 146 that opens by saying, by saying, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And then 26 times it repeats, His hesed is forever. Your version will say, His steadfast love endures forever. No wonder when people saw Jesus, they cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in His life, and death and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all creation. And God did this just because of who He is, generous, loving, and eternally loyal to His promises. Aren't we thankful that these two characteristics of God are following us? We don't need to chase after them. They will pursue us and cling to us. Philip Keller, who's been quoted a few times in this series, has written about this portion. He says, herein is the essence of all that's gone before in this psalm. All the care, all the work, all the alert watchfulness, all the skill, all the concern, all the self-sacrifice are born of his life. The, one of love, the, the, the love of one who loves his sheep, loves his work, loves his role as a shepherd. I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But before we move on uh, in this verse, let's uh, think of another idea of this word follow. It could also mean what comes after you, like the wake of a boat or the jet stream of a plane in the sky. What about goodness and mercy following after us, meaning that every room we leave goodness and mercy should remain and should linger long afterwards. Every classroom, every coffee shop, every time we tuck our children into bed, at the close of these encounters, the sweet aroma of our kindness and the warmth of our love should linger long after we have left. Perhaps as an individual or a couple or a family, you need to make this your prayer, that the people in your street know that there's something different about you, that every time they see you and meet you, that they're left feeling something different, something that radiates the good news uh, to your neighborhood. In the world of work where people are promoted for their big personality, wouldn't it be good if it was your wholesome character and generous and gracious disposition that your work colleagues remark upon when you leave a meeting room or end a Zoom call? Let's not ignore the, last, or the final few verses of this uh, first sentence, all the, the days of my life. The goodness and mercy of God is present every day of your life. That's today and tomorrow and the next, right to the end of time. What a comforting thought. What a hopeful sentiment. But let's get honest with ourselves. What does that mean for you? Do these truths make any difference when you wake up and go about your ordinary day? Will the presence of the Lord in your life guiding you, leading you, restoring you, make your day any better? 
or any more joyful? Is there any difference in you than anybody else who doesn't have the presence of God in their life? This has been a challenge for me as I've considered this psalm. Get beyond the fluffy sheep analogy and ask yourself the hard question, does the, percent, the, the presence and pursuit of God make any difference to the next 24 hours that I go about my business? Perhaps, like me, you need to engage in this reality more. Do you need to acknowledge the Lord more each day in your life? How does your day start? How does it end? Would your approach to temptation in those private moments be any different if you reminded yourself that the Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, is your companion? Do you need to ask God for the faith to believe in Him even though you can't see Him? I've recently read uh, The God of All Things, uh, The God of All Things by Andrew Wilson. Uh, Andrew reminds us, uh, and thank you, Adam, for flicking on these slides since my computer has died. Andrew uh, reminds us that God uses the things we see and hear and touch and taste to remind us about Him. Bread, rain, mountains, honey, flour, donkeys, everything. These things reveal the gospel in everyday life and fuel my worship and my joy of God. Let's move on to the, the second point, the dwelling place of God. And whether it's the, the home of the shepherd or of the Lord as the host, David certainly thinks that it's worth staying there. The Hebrew text actually says, I will return uh, to, the, to dwell in the house of the Lord. The, the picture may have been of the psalmist returning year after year uh, to celebrate the feast in the sanctuary. Or perhaps David was in some ways celebrated, uh, separated from the tabernacle and the full enjoyment of its benefits. Whatever way, uh, David here is ref re referring to the returning to the place that God dwells. A couple of weeks ago, when we were back in verse 4, Ian Kerr expertly reminded us of what the presence of God looks like in the Bible, in our lives, and beyond. The presence of God and the dwelling place of God are in many ways the same idea. Throughout uh, the, uh, the sweep of the Bible story, there are many themes, kings and kingdoms, covenants and marriages, sacrifice and redemption. But one of these grand themes is the Lord's dwelling place. It starts small in the Garden of Eden, uh, but in the end, we see exciting plans to extend to a universal, cosmic-sized temple, somewhere to worship the Lord forever. But back in the garden, Adam was uh, placed in Eden, and this was the place where Adam walked and talked with God. It says in Genesis, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God is essentially instructing Adam to expand the temple over the entire earth. But Adam sins, and he loses his priestly role, and a cherubim is placed in the garden uh, to guard it. And that should remind us of the cherubim that's placed over the Ark of the Covenant itself. And moving on, we see God's blueprint for the way his relationship with his then chosen people, the Israelites, would work. He gathers uh, them together and gives them plans for a temporary structure, the, a tent called the tabernacle. And later, as Ian reminded us, uh, there came this massive stone building 
uh, firstly called Solomon's Temple and then later versions and extensions. Study these uh, designs uh, of these places and see that they're full of this garden imagery uh, back to Eden. They were impressive places, but ultimately God's plan was for his dwelling place to expand. The glory of God was to fill the whole earth, as it says in Numbers 14. And then fast forward and we have the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. The New Testament shows Christ and the church finally doing what Adam and Israel failed to do in extending God's presence in the world. We see the resurrected Jesus as the cornerstone of a new and living temple where the disciples of Jesus make up this temple. We represent God on earth the blessing and presence of God in the temple and the tabernacle and the, uh, in the garden and the tabernacle and the temples is now transferred to this new dwelling place, the universal church. First Peter uh, chapter 2 says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Here's a spoiler alert. It gets even better. This is the ultimate fulfillment of what David penned in verse 6 of the 23rd Psalm. God creates a new heaven and a new earth to be his great temple, where he would dwell with his people in harmony. It'll be paradise. We get uh, that word from the Greek for garden. It's our forever home, the grand design that Jesus describes in John 14. On the cross, Jesus made a promise to a man who hung there beside him and who trusted him in the final hours of his life. Jesus said that this very day, the criminal would be with him in paradise. The hope of resurrection of mankind begins to take shape in this grand story. John's vision in Revelation paints a beautiful picture of this place. When we see it in the final chapters of Revelation, we get this most delightful deja vu. There's a river, a tree, leaves, fruits, gold, and even a marriage. And in the midst of it all, God himself is there so bright that there's no need for the sun and so present that there's no need for a temple. Turn, if you can, to Revelation chapter 7 and look at another perspective to John's vision for this future. Here it describes those who've been led home by the shepherd. Look at the familiar language used here as in Psalm 23, but notice the lack of valleys and shadows and enemies and death. Revelation 7 says, therefore they, that's God's redeemed people, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits in the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a wonderful vision for our secure future. What gardens of delight await us. 
a holy city, the joy of the whole earth. But Paul uh, in the New Testament was very quick to point out to the early church, and so it applies to us today, that all this talk of the future and resurrection is no excuse to ignore the present, to cocoon ourselves away until such times. Yes, this is a, an eternal dwelling, um, and it, it, it secures us a bright hope uh, for tomorrow, but it also gives us strength for today. The Bible says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's a present verb, and I'm not no good at English. We are already a new creation. The kingdom of God is in us right now. David Gooding said, the wonderful thing about eternal life is this. It enables those who possess it to live in such a way that the experiences, duties, pleasures, and pains of this passing world can be given eternal significance and be made to yield an eternal reward. Dwelling in the presence of God means trusting in the character of God, including His goodness and His mercy. It doesn't mean that we'll be fully protected from harm. Look at what they did to Jesus and to His disciples. Look at what evil has caused for millions in this world who live in poverty, oppression, and in distress. Psalm 23 wasn't meant for fluffy, carefree sheep. Dwelling in the presence of God means trusting in the love of God and the goodness of God and the power of God to protect you from everything that could utterly destroy you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, even when we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The two sisters in the Nazi concentration camp in Germany, Corrie and Betsy Ten Boom, understood this when they read in their tiny smuggled Bible that they were more than conquerors. They trusted that God's mercy secured their future happiness together. We live on the east side of the city, and often coming back from holiday on the north coast or Donegal, or just off a plane at Aldergrove, we drive down the M2 from Glengormley, down that hill towards Belfast. And we get the feeling that we're home. We've still about 15, 20 minutes to drive to get to our house, but we get that feeling that we're home. We relax a bit, the, the, the tightness in the back seat with all the boys sitting there, that suddenly got easier. Um, we, were, we were nearly home. And it was so good to be away, but it was so good uh, to come home. And for one, in one day, uh, one day ahead for all of us, if you've trusted in the Good Shepherd, you will go home to a place that is prepared for us. Maybe you long to go there. Maybe there's some of the journey left and there's a, a work to be done on the earth first. But one fine day, you will uh, dwell in the house of the Lord uh, forever. Amen. That's Psalm uh, 23 uh, in six weeks. And we've thought about the Lord uh, as our shepherd who is ever-present, pursuing us with goodness and mercy and encouraging us as his sheep to rely on him whatever lies, ahe lies ahead and forevermore. I'd like to uh, pray for you now, um, using a prayer that's been uh, adapted a little from the final prayer of Dallas Willard in his book on the 23rd Psalm, Life Without Lack. So let's pray together.
Gracious Lord, our great shepherd, help us to see clearly by faith your sufficiency and power and wisdom. May we fully grasp the significance that in you there is simply nothing lacking. Help us to know that we are your greatest treasure and your desire is to lead us, restore us, and care for us. Protect us and our families from those who would do us harm and seek to deceive us and discourage us. Remind us that we have nothing to fear, even in the shadow of death, because you are with us. Lord, we acknowledge our feelings, but ask that you help us to know you more fully, love you more deeply, and follow you more closely. Thank you for the peace and rest you bring in the midst of all our circumstances. Help us not to strive to gain favor, not to expect to get our own way, not to worry about who's going to take care of us. Free us from these things because you are with us and in you we have everything we need. And now give us the confidence and power to love all who are in our lives just as we are fully loved by you. We ask all this because we would have it no other way. Amen. Thanks, Ryan.